0: Welcome to I Put Real Estate's Shaping Our City podcast, where we discuss topical issues affecting real estate, the built environment, and the vitality of cities. The theme of today's episode is the role that design can play in making better experiences in cities, neighbourhoods, and workplaces, and also attracting people back to cities. In this week's episode, Niall Gaffney, CEO of iPut, is in conversation with Dan Shannon from MDAS Architects and Brad Zismore from Architecture Plus Information Design Agency.
1: I'd like to welcome Dan Shannon and Brad Zismore to our conversation today, which is really off the back of our Making Better conference, which we're hosting in Dublin, um, looking at how we make better places, how we make better cities, better neighborhoods, better experiences. And a lot of that came out of a recent trip in March earlier this year that I took with my team looking at how we could learn from some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that are facing developers in cities and, and particularly in Manhattan that has been hit particularly hard by COVID. Um, a metropolis, a city of of great innovation, of great challenges and some incredible places, not least of them Penn Station and, and and the Penn District, in which both Brad and Dan are collaborating on. So we're here today to discuss some of the projects they've worked on, and I'd like to hand it over to both Brad and Dan to introduce themselves.
2: Now, thank you. I'm Dan Shannon, MDS Architects, and I think what we do best and what gives us the most energy is taking old buildings and making them new, mm-hmm. um, and focusing on assets throughout the world that had had their time. And as the market changed, and as they got a little bit tattered, um, bringing them back, giving them life again. We've done it um, quite a bit in New York City, uh, the General Motors building. Um, that was the first building that anybody paid a billion dollars for. Uh, Harry Mackleau did, and people were questioning, um, where's the value? and um, And we were able to Reposition that building um, primarily with Harry bringing um, Apple, Steve Jobs, and Peter Bolin in to uh, collaborate on creating probably the greatest retail moment in, in the world there and really transitioned that building. And we continue to do that. The Pan Am building by Breuer, which is now um, the MetLife building at 200 Park, again, just bringing a over two million square foot asset um, back into the market. That's over Grand Central Station, and um, one of the most challenging projects we worked on years ago was the tallest building in Toronto, the first Canadian place, um, and it was kind of their icon. You know, it's the Empire State Building of Canada. And um, we had to completely remake the building because out of 10,000 pieces of Italian marble, they all decided to do what they were trained to do, and that's to live on the ground. And one launched off the building, and we had to rebuild the entire building. And had we failed, uh, I would have been run out of town. Um, And it was an extraordinarily technical achievement and um, just a a wonder to work on. Um, But um, that's primarily the focus of the building. So Dan, you talked a lot about collaboration. I think
1: that's what really struck me and struck my team when we came to visit you in New York and we met you we met Brad, Brad Zismore. And I think that collaboration that you just described in those three or four major projects was developers, designers, architects, but people coming together to try and find solutions to I suppose make better buildings, make better places. And I think Brad, where have you come in on that and and your role in in a lot of these major projects? Where do you see the change in the future of how people work and how designers play a role in that?
3: Um, Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having us here today. It's been a really exciting Trip and getting to meet you and see your beautiful city and understand what's happening in the work life of folks here in Dublin and it's it's exactly what you brought up. We've been studying for the last twenty seven years how how people work, and I will tell you, we uh, we got into this business at the right time. It's been a tumultuous, exciting, ever changing story since mm-hmm. we started. Nineteen ninety six was our was our first full year, and. My partner Dag Folger and I uh, graduated school together, the same school Dan went to, which is kind of interesting and ironic and and wonderful at, in New York City at Columbia University. We came out into the into the design environment as architects, and we said we're going to work on making people's office spaces, which now seems like a cool idea. Mm. At the time, it was almost non-existent. You know, office spaces were filing cabinets, workstations, cubes. Um, it wasn't really a big issue. It was more of a, of, a, of a necessity of bringing people together around heavy machines. You'll hear me say this a lot, like we mm. we followed the history of workplace. Workplaces came up. We learned that it wasn't until the industrial revolution that people really came to places to work. Most people worked either in agriculture or in and around their home, and they made something in a, mm. in a space they already yeah. had. They didn't build a building as a, as a place to work. And the Industrial Revolution had folks come together around heavy machines. And that continued in the early part of the 20th century for folks who were working around heavy machines. The machines happened to be, in that case, adding machines. Um, they, they became these computers with big, you know, <laughs> dots and pieces of paper and then eventually the IBM Selectric and then our heavy computers. And as we got to 95, 96, right when we started, um, the machines we used to work started to become mobile. And you can hold them in your hand, or right? Because at that time, they were on a strap over your shoulder. And this story we followed all the way up to today, or three years ago, during COVID, we learned that our machines for working were even more flexible and movable than we thought, because we all went to bed on Friday night and we're told we're not coming back to an office and had to figure out a way to use our machines to do work together in a remote way. And so our practice has followed this story of how people work and trying to bring them together in physical space, architecture, making architecture for how people work. Um, If there are people listening who are old enough to remember, we started our practice at the beginning of the first dot-com boom. So we were working for companies like Razorfish and Rare Medium and in, in the industry standard. These were household names in 1998. 99, and I think all of them are gone. <laughs> Most of mm-hmm. them. I think Rare Medium is still around. And we lived through this tumultuous reinvention of the workplace because of the internet. And then we happily went along the next you know, several years bringing some of those ideas of how people worked in a flexible way to more conventional companies like real estate companies and banks and ad agencies and things like that. Today, we find ourselves working with companies trying to imagine how to re-congregate in physical space together and work and somehow make sense out of the last three years where we were told and and lived an experience where we didn't have to be together to work. And so, we're in this incredibly interesting moment and we've been studying how people work in and around office buildings for the last 27 years. And about seven years ago, or when did I meet you, Dan? About about seven years ago, we were asked, and so we were almost 100% tenant architects working inside of buildings. Basically, Dan would do something really cool, make some great facades and elevators and lobbies. And then our tenants would come along and say, can you guys poke holes in this or say it's great or figure out how we should use these slabs of concrete? And about seven years ago, one of our clients was smart enough to say, wait a second, instead of letting this take a natural progression where we work with Dan for three years, make something we think folks will like, and then have people like Brad and his teams come around and other interior architects come around and see whether they liked it or not. What if we let them talk before we even started building? And that was the first project we collaborated on, and it became super interesting Mm. to imagine. And they were speculative office buildings. We still didn't know. It wasn't like a particular tenant of mine was interested in going mm. to a particular building that Dan was working on the corn shell. But it was more, how can we get smarter about so there, speculative there's design? In,
1: there's an inherent risk with that, isn't there? You have to be brave. Yeah. So you need a developer or a visionary or a promoter to say, well, let's get out in front of this. What, what prompted that? Was that just a really insightful real estate person, or was it you two guys convincing your client that you need to think differently?
2: Well, the project we're talking about is uh, reinventing the Penn District in New York City and uh, comprised uh, nearly 4 million square feet of office building. Mm. I started on it with Vernado um, 10 years ago, and we were just creating, as Brad nicely said, cool office buildings. And um, the chairman, Steve Ross, said, I want to build a building That people come to New York and say, I have to see that building. So that became kind of a thought process so to fulfill that he looked at me and said and that means it can't be with you <laughs> and so he invited every single pritzker prize winning gold medalist not bronze thank you very much dan you got the bronze um i got architect, a ribbon i didn't even get it yeah exactly you got a, you got a participation exactly. medal so um so he invented he invited all of these and i was still a part of it um helping that people with code and 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 knowledge issues and so on and so forth and at the end the team Bernado team said not a single one of these buildings meets the market not a single one of these buildings is going to answer the question of why people are going to want to be here so they figured out that uh, just as brad said that they needed a partner on this who intuited and understood what brought people to these places and what made them work in the best way they possibly can. And that's when we met up. And, you know, I I love the simple statement, while we were making all these buildings, and Brad just said it, Brad was unmaking them. It was remarkable. We were poking holes. Right. He was just (laughs) poking holes in his, he says, in all the worst places, right? It was a remarkable. You know, sometimes when you got a big building that was built for something else and didn't need light and air, everybody thought that the place to put the the hole would be in the middle of it. Brad was putting it out on the edge where people wanted to be, you know, and where it activated things. We um we did a building the first building built in what's called the Plaza District, which is the most expensive real estate in New York. We built the first building, um, office building that had been built there for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the owner understood, as I said uh, earlier in our conversation, he closed his eyes and he imagined who was going to be there and how they were going to be there without having somebody there. And then he didn't hire Brad, he hired Dan. And we were able to do all the things that, Brad knew the tenants needed, like restaurants and setback terraces and so on and so forth, and, and buildings that were had really interesting edges on them. But we didn't have the insight of the tenants. So the setback terrace, as lovely as it was with mm-hmm. a, car, a garden and all these wonderful windows... Without him, there was no connection between inside and outside. There was no connection between mm-hmm. the restaurant inside and outside. It pushed the ball forward, but it didn't make it all the way into the goal um, because we didn't have that tenant insight, that user insight, that um, all of that insight that it needed to make so that it was a complete project.
1: And this, uh, this is the whole idea of re—what did you say—recongregating physically? Yeah, it's basically bringing coming back together and coming space. back together. And I think that's the human element of design that I'm picking up from that whole collaborative approach. That you know, you understand what occupiers want, okay. you understand what makes a good building.
2: All, all I understand is how to keep water off of people's heads. <laughs> <lives. laughs>
1: And I think that's what's drawn us together. And I think that's what you know. We went to New York to see and learn about some really good examples, some really tough examples. But for us, it's about that idea of building resilience into buildings, yeah. neighborhoods, and it's that resilience that we're trying to capture in our discussions at, at making better. And I think if we can learn from what. Your experience has been, um, and Dan's um, combined with the, the broader discussion. I think it would be a, a great, a great opportunity for us to see how we can apply that to Wilson Park. Yeah, because a bit like your um, client, we want people to come to Dublin to see Wilson Park, and we're at a, a very interesting inflection point, I think, with, with, with the market and with what people want from buildings in the post-COVID world. And with Wilton Park, we're very fortunate. We have four, four buildings pre-let to LinkedIn, but we have this ground floor streetscape yeah. that we've yet to figure out. And I think your point about closing your eyes and seeing what could be there and could come, yeah. that's really what we want to try and figure out with your help.
3: Well, one thing that just occurred to me when you talk about Questions. We all have questions. What will the future be like? What, what is this typology going to be? Right? This, this new hybrid reality. And we talk a lot about stripping the mystery away from that. Mm. We have two great examples that anyone can see. There's the hotel, the great urban hotel, which has got multi-hundred-year history, and we understand how those operate. And then there's the university setting or any any learning setting. And in, in the case of the hotel, we always say – and we think about office buildings now in terms of resorts or hotels – Rare, I mean, there's a certain part of your stay where you're in the room, of course, and it's somewhat important. You want it to be nice and clean and all those things. But a resort hotel, you're spending most of your time in the amenitized spaces that make the location you you plan to go to, you know, worth worth visiting. And the room becomes a place to sleep. And the amenitized portion of the office building, before COVID, I think, and, and in the case, I mean, Bornado saw this coming way before COVID, honestly, the amenities that a landlord was thinking about um, offering to the tenant base were the things you can do to get away from work. Right? We have this, this idea that you know, we spent a hard time working on an Excel spreadsheet and we finally just have to blow off some steam. So, wouldn't it be nice to have a golf simulator or a park to have a beer or what are these things, these, these ways of getting away from work? What we're finding now is that the, the, the model is flipping to be more like a hotel where the office space is like the like the, the room got to be clean. It's got to do its job. I need to go up there and it's got to be a a reasonable facility. But the exciting part of visiting or being away are all the things you're going to do in the lobby and in the pool area, or if you're lucky enough, or the tennis court. Those are the places where you really have the meaningful experiences. And so we're seeing this flip of the amenity becoming the workplace, mm. and the workplace becoming the amenity. Yeah. It's like I just had a great lecture where I heard my coworkers doing this incredible thing with this spreadsheet, and I learned about all these things at a, at a, at a you know an offering that my that my company made possible in all of these amenitized spaces. Then I go to my work to my, my desk to burn through email for half an hour and then get back to the fun stuff so this this flipping of the amenity and the workplace is an example of and, and we have we have physical examples now the the downside to that and when Dan and I started working together with Varnado is our thesis was to take the bottom of the building I mean 300,000 square feet of the building take it offline from the rental market and make it all these amenitized experiences that are that the talent that works for our clients want to have that's a different financial model which is above our pay grade and they figured it out but what happens if you take the public parts of buildings and make them an integral part of the workplace that's a vision that Seems confounding or very unusual because office buildings, remember, used to just be towers with slabs of concrete and a really nice looking lobby that would get you up to your office floor at 901 and get you off your office
1: floor at 459. Yeah, I think you've mentioned before about this idea of purpose, and it's it's a word that's bandied around. And the idea of having a purpose when you go to the workplace or you go into the city, I mean, I think that's what attracts us to this discussion. You know, we find that whether it's public art, whether it's just nice landscaping, a nice pocket park, you know, that emotional connection that people can get from going to a place and either they occupy the building or they just pass by the building or just hang out. I think that's critical to a place being successful. You know, if people love a place, they keep coming back to it. And I think for that resilience that you talk about, Dan, and restoring older buildings, restoring buildings back, giving them a new lease of life, I think that's probably your purpose in a lot of what you're doing.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's funny if if you had asked me 10 years ago, you know, what's your business plan? The, the honest answer was to stay away from the end user as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had the luxury of that for 20 years of just working with visionary developers. And uh, who had an idea of purpose and it wasn't, let's make a lot of money. The guys that come out of this and just say, I did my job. I hired an architect. You do your thing and make me a lot of money. Those were all failures. It was the right, person yeah. who could come and define what that place was going to be like. Mm. I, I had a client who actually could describe to a T the kind of person who was going to rent that apartment, and what they were going to put on their shelves. And once I heard that, and once the design team heard that, once we heard that, we could actually design everything to that and build that image. And those were the most successful things. And sometimes it takes time. So that it, thing about
1: yeah. branding is been like you're talking about yeah. Penn District. So what's, what's Penn District going to look and feel like when you're finished your project? You talked about three floors with mm. 300,000 square feet of amenity space, space that's porous, that's you know, opening out into Madison Square Garden foyers and, and, and concourse areas.
2: So what is that going to look like when it's, when it's done and dusted? Well, I'm going to start and he's going to finish because I outside, he inside. But as soon as you step on that curb, you know you're in another place. Every piece of that has been thought of and invested to become a unified place, as you said, for people, for the purpose that we talked about. And so all the streetscape, the way traffic goes, how people are getting in and out of the train station and the subways, every bit of that has been thought through Um, So that we're creating an experience that people just walking by, or people commuting, or people going to Madison Square Garden, or going to a pizza parlor, they all have a way um, in. And from that point, um, Brad's team um, actually designed all of the signage, which keeps... You wouldn't even call it signage. I know, Brad, you know, all, all mean, the way I, these, the environmental graphics. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> That's a fancy so, word for signage. Right, right. So, so that everybody knows that everything you're doing is consistent with what really you want to be doing, not what we want them to be doing, but what, what they want to be doing. And, and I think it's, it, it's remarkable. What you did at Wilson Park is the same thing. You made the investment. Um, I, I wanted to go back to that a little bit. We could keep talking. But without Wilson Park, it is called Wilson Park. Right? Wilson Park. Wilton Park. I'm sorry. I was stuck on um volleyballs. Um <laughs> Wilton Park is that is the biggest placemaker you have there. It's a wonderful thing. And you could have tidied it up and moved on, and you didn't. Mm. You made it the best thing it could possibly be, which is a well-maintained, well-used. Um, public park. And that moves fully into your building. Um, and and all the way up to the top where you come back out and look down on it. If you were looking over a ill-used, you know, park with dying trees, I think the value of what you did would be um, fully diminished. And, and you understood that. And from most parts in your development, you're seeing that mm. and you're seeing it reflected on the buildings too which is a, a wonderful thing
1: well yeah i mean i think we if we if we look at the wilton park development you know, the the real unique selling point is the park and the park became synonymous with everything we we've designed into that space and it's a simple human reaction to a green space and putting in deck chairs was probably the most successful and cost-efficient thing we ever did in terms of design around that whole development. You know, people gravitate to that park. Um, Our plan is to make that park even better and it becomes a centrepiece of that whole development. But it's the next step on where, you know, creating that um, emotional connection, that branding that you've referred to um, for Wilson Park within the city of Dublin, a bit like what we've seen in New York where I'm sure... As Penn develops out, um, I noticed they they've put in this Moynihan connection, mm-hmm. which is going to link it to the High Line. And the, the impact of those kind of initiatives um, will really shift the dial, I presume, towards that whole district. Um, but in terms of the impact of what you've done already, is there any examples or numbers you can share with us around the impact of that 300,000 square feet in that base of the tower in Penn?
2: Well, go ahead, Brad. Yeah I, guess, you know. yeah, I mean, just
3: a little bit about it. I think, and I don't know how many people understand the the unbelievable complexity about this place in the world, right? It's the busiest transit hub in North America. It serves more commuters than anywhere else. It has all kinds of political and and land use issues. It's it's a, it's a, it's a hot button topic. I don't, I don't. I can't even begin to explain it. But what I, what I can tell you is that I think the best part about this interim future, which is where we, we, we live right now with the first three major improvements, I think, on the site. Which the Moynihan Station, the development to the west, which has been very successful in Hudson Yards and Manhattan West, and the improvements that the city, state, Amtrak, all the different municipalities are starting to make in the station below, Madison Square Garden and its successful entertainment venue. I think it speaks to some of what Dan and I were alluding to, is that people want to be part of something bigger than just themselves yeah they want to be convinced and i'm, I'm getting back to covid i apologize but it's uh, it's an interesting topic for you know workplace designer people need to be convinced that there's something worth coming back to yeah and, yeah. and, and the truth is a lot of people's jobs they can do pretty well uh, in sweatpants at their kitchen table they really can so tell me and and the smart talent is asking tell me why and what do I get when I make that that voyage? And I, I think the answer is simple: it's it's, it's human interaction which will both improve my life as the person who took the time to come in and improve the life of the person who I interact with. And now, that doesn't necessarily mean your coworker, because on Slack or Zoom or this or that, you can have a meaningful exchange with your coworker. I think that young people and and, and people who are more advanced in their careers want something more out of their day-to-day. And, and let's face it, with, with working from home, we're spending even more hours even more of our waking hours are now towards work. So, in those interactions and those, those human experiences, what, what, who am I going to meet? Who will I come in contact with? What kind of conversations will I have with them? What will I learn about myself or other people? And one of the things I'm really proud of about the, the Penn um, experiment that we're in the middle of is that we are, um, I, I call it organized chaos. You have multiple streams of folks who are doing completely different things, come from completely different walks of life, have completely different um, intentions in their day, interacting, connecting, sharing spaces with each other. We have a lot of public-private parks in in the neighborhood. We have the development of a new station that brings commuters who are coming for different reasons. We have office workers who are coming nine to five, Monday through Thursday, or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Monday and Friday, but not on Wednesday. We have all these different patterns of all these different people intersecting, and we're creating spaces where they can have human interactions. And in a a world, and again, I'm going to focus on work, in a world where I can close a deal with my thumb on my iPhone while I'm waiting for coffee, which is really how we live now, right? The spaces in and between my office space are, I would say, maybe 10 times more important than the ergonomic chair that I sit in at at my workstation. Now, whether the things I can do right after I'm finished with my work are in my home, you know, the things I'm doing between my, my the, the part of my job, which are redundant tasks, those are the magical moments. Those are the connection points. And, and we've been in, in the effort of creating spaces between the office buildings mm-hmm. and in and around the office buildings where those meaningful t- connections can take place. And it's not easy. It's it's a
1: complicated it's design not, effort. What strikes me though, because we're struggling with this in Dublin, and and sometimes it's it's really frustrating. And like I'm, and we went to New York, where you know people aren't laid back. Let's just face it; they're, they're quite highly motivated. Let's just say. And you've got you've got people you've just described there. You've got the city planners. You've got the rail company. You've got the owners of Madison Square Garden. You've got a lot of competing interests there. Yet it sounds to me like. There was a willingness there for all these competing interests and competing forces, both private, social and personal, to come together and actually try to make something happen. And whether that's Penn 2, whether it's the redevelopment of SL Greenside and Grand Central Station, whether it was Hudson Yards you refer to, west of here, um, even that Moynihan connector coming across, how does... Hard nosed business people and New Yorkers at that come together. Leadership, for
2: that, yeah, for purpose. Leadership. Mm. You, what you said actually happened. There are two things that uh, that were just said that I think are remarkable. That people want to be part of something bigger. Mm. I think that's an incredible statement, and I think mm. it's a hundred percent true. Whether you're here in Dublin or here in New York, New Yorkers just yell it louder, and and they think they're the big thing to be a part of. Um, but but also to understand that you've got to solve all those problems. What's remarkable about that Penn project is that it is an emblem of bringing those, all those stakeholders together, listening to them, and making the investment. Um, and that's that's what happened there. It's the mixiest mixed-use project in New York. And it's an emblem for everything. Everybody thinks that a train station has to be on its own land and that a um, an arena for 40,000 people has to be on its own land surrounded by parking. And then an office building or two or three office buildings have to be on their own land, on and on and on. And they can all work together. And there's other examples throughout the world that that do that very well. And when you're in a dense urban environment, maybe all these things have to play together. And maybe that is making something bigger, as you said, Brad, than anything else. I think it would be much more exciting for me to start my career going to a place where everything is. One is that I get there easy, right? On my bike or in a train or walking. And that on the way in, I've got all these offerings and I rarely have to even go up to the office because as Brad said, I'm working on my tablet with my colleagues here and there and everywhere um, that I potentially uh, could go see a magnificent athletic event or something like that and end up on a park on top of it. It is an offering that we could only imagine and rarely imagined. And when we were younger, and and the thing is, you just got to bring everybody together. Mm. You've got to give them vision that that you can do that. You got to incentivize them. I think that's called money. Um, but then you got to do it. But this you, is the point: you actually about have to deliver.
1: Business can be a force for social good. You know, making a profit, making good returns can also be a force for social good. So, in your experience with. Activity in New York and Penn as an example, without maybe naming names, you know who led that and and how did Vernado convince the city to play ball, convince the the rail station to play ball.
2: Everyone, um, obviously, is led by the chairman Steve Roth. Mm. You know I mean, he 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 laid down the rules, laid down the track, um, but. You know, the hammer-swinging people were the the entire development team and leasing team who were in lockstep with, with that vision. Um, city planning, just like here, the government, it was a major, major um, partner in all of that. Whether or not we would have given a wh- back as much public space as we did without the requirement it would be to be seen, but it made it better. You know we had a um a saying um, any time our client would push back in our meetings with city planning where they would want one more tree we would simply say, we're going to have three more meetings where they ask for one more tree. And on the fourth meeting, you're going to give them the one more tree. So let's just go into that meeting and give them the one One more more tree. tree. And we did. And we, we did a first ever thing where we actually took away public space to create a better entry that, Brad insisted, I want my better entry. So Dan had to go to city planning to find a way to give him his better entry. And the trade-off for that was much better public spaces, a better entry for Brad. But um, we also had to make a new train station entry. Um, So the, the entire balance of quid pro quo really worked there um but it comes back down to that final word investment um and you know there there is a risk in that but we're seeing the reward you asked uh, about that a little bit and you know one pen's been online and it's doing extraordinarily well i think it's proven a model um that that works um in, in terms of being a place where people want to be and makes them part of something bigger yeah i mean
3: the the basic premise is if my office space above is only part of the story of why it's good to come work in this building will the customer pay for that experience they do in hotels will it will it, will it translate to an mm-hmm. office building and i think the answer we have received from the market is yes If you create a place with provably valuable spaces that my talent, the people that I care about who work with me want to be during the day, I'll pay for it even if it's not up on my floor. I mean that, that, was, that was the question, right? Will it work? Because it's not conventional, right? We, lobbies were, like I said, uh, very efficient. We call them slippery slippery places that you can just easily get in up to my desk so I can do my eight hours of work or seven and a half or seven and a quarter and get back out. What if those lobbies got much bigger and became part of my day? A really value, now I don't mean a, a, a newsstand. I mean, really a place where I hung out. I did my best work. I made my best connections. I did some of my best thinking. And we talk and we, we try to study hard about where people come up with their best ideas. Where they, Dan and I talk about this a lot. We know that walking while you think is a very good thing to do. Seeing natural, um, seeing nature mm, while you yeah. walk and while you think are really good things to do. What if we create those environments for the tenants in these buildings? Will they pay for it indirectly? I think the answer, the market's answer was yes, right? This building has, bec- has become much more valuable in the marketplace as a, an office building that people want to be part of. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's scientific and, and final, but uh, like the Magic 8-Ball says, uh, all signs
2: are yes. Think of the investment that was made by all these tech companies um, in bringing talent and keeping talent in their buildings. Um, some of it was a bit you know, goofy, but most of it was real. And think of the value. Of those companies now. Um, so it is an investment that pays off. And what I like, what we're seeing now is that you know developers, owners, managers such as yourself are willing to think about that and make those investments and actually grow those companies. Uh, you know, I think all these companies that go into buildings that you're making are going to be able to retain, you know, get and retain the talent because of the offerings that are there, and that, as Brad said, that they're part of something, something bigger. bigger yeah, and I think
1: that that is really key. Been, been part of something bigger, and the reason I suppose we were motivated to have this conversation with with both yourself, Dan, and, and Brad, was we see Wilson Park as being part of something bigger. Oh, that's so,
2: Wilson Park. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> Wilton Park. So again, we want it to be the mixiest mixed use park in, in Dublin, yeah. as you said, but I th- I do think that it is a human motivation to do something yeah. like that and do something important like that. And I think the, the, the kind of people that are going to those offices and we want to go to those workplaces, but also to hang out in those areas after work during the weekends are people that see the value in that. And we we have a deficit at the moment in Dublin of, you know, the economic, the social, the cultural issues around our city are are being challenged weekly. Um, The vibrancy of the city is being challenged. And it's that recovery from the COVID hangover, Mm. as we see it, is taking us longer than perhaps it should. Um, We're in a very privileged position. We have a a city and a people that are at full employment. Um, We are probably seen in Europe as, in quotes, a rich uh, nation. But we seem to be poor in relation to that that vibrancy in our in our urban spaces, and I think a lot of that is probably, in my view, down to probably an immature level of urbanisation. You know, the country was industrialised in the nineteen sixties and seventies, um, so compared to London or New York, we've we probably haven't been at this long enough in terms of urbanisation. Um, you've seen some of Dublin today and and yesterday when you, you did some tours. I mean, what's your impression of the uh, the scale of the city and and in that short period of time you've been been here your impressions
2: well there is this very consistent line of urbanism that exists here that's interspersed with these wonderful parks and greens and squares and so on and all of the buildings most of the buildings sorry are contributing to that and not a lot of them are doing the hey look at me thing And, you know, they're all collaborating and contributing um, and so on. And I think um, one is keep that brand going. Keep making buildings that play nice with each other. And I think Brad can elaborate more on it is you got to open them up a bit more. Mm. You know, what what happened remarkably is you have all these uh, terrace housing. Mm you know, and blocks and blocks of it. And it's, you know, uh, such as your own office building. It's, um, you know, your the headquarters. George, the Georgian you know, streetscape. Yeah, escape, yeah Georgian streetscape, which is lovely. But most, a lot of it now, as you, you told us, is um, offices. Mm. And, you know, there was a different impression when there are homes. When homes, you know, you really didn't want to look in, but they had little, flower boxes and so on and so forth. So you knew there are houses, um, people's homes and people were coming and going out of those. And office buildings, they behave a bit differently. And I think, you know, um, the next generation of those have to recognize those, open them up a bit more. More mixed use. Yeah, yeah. Well, just open them up even architecturally um, yeah. a bit more and then have them kind of affect the street. You know, we went on and on about how You have a green thumb and you've been going around and doing a lot of planting and that is a huge step forward because it starts to take those beautiful parks and squares and bring them across the street Mm. and make it a a much more um, consistent world.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things Dan and I were talking about in terms of opening up, I think the reason that people, I believe, the reason that people are attracted to cities, and 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 broadly over time, I think we'll become more urbanized. Um, it's really the 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 most efficient way for people to to share resources, and 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 I think uh, people will continue to congregate and come together as opposed to move apart. Which in the middle of COVID, the whole storyline was everyone's going to going to scatter. I think not only will people come together, I think they'll they'll come together e- with even more numbers. In even greater density which creates even more challenges um social and physical and architectural but i think from what i've seen dan and i walked around quite a bit and you showed us some really cool cool things i want to see more i believe in what's happening behind those facades i have seen we've been lucky enough to, to to walk around with you and you've opened up a bunch of doors and showed us a bunch of incredible Mm. um, things spaces people um, imaginations um, cultures ideas and I think the more that we can see I'm actually looking across the street while we're recording and I'm seeing something interesting happening up in a a stairwell I think people come to cities to be together to see and show and share and I think the ground floor the ground plane that I've seen in Dublin so far and I'm speaking mostly about the office building ground floors that I've seen, are holding stories behind them that belie the exterior. And I'm not talking about destroying Georgian historical facades necessarily. I'm talking about even the more modern office buildings that have more, more porous facades. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I, I just want to say, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's definitely how I feel. There's a difference between creating amenitized, open connection environments for people who are endeavoring in office buildings and having good retail. They're not the same thing. I think you, you, you do want to have good retail, but I think it's uh, the response, well, I don't know if it's a responsibility, but a good choice, and I, and I believe that you're one of these developers, it's a good choice for developers to take on more than just bringing in good retail tenants. But being part of the the, the play, being part of the drama that's unfolding in and around our buildings, it's a lot of responsibility. I think it's somewhat, exp- it's expensive, It's hard won, but when you become part of the story, it's not just about picking the right retailers, but but, but setting up the right connections, mm. the right incidental meetings, the right uh, shared populations. And the more I, I think the buildings you showed us today are really starting to do that. You showed us an amazing park that you built outside of some office buildings that you bought. Um, I think creating programmed experiences that offer, you know, farmers markets are a good example or music programs or spaces that are truly shared for mm. people who are, and, and I th- who are tenants and who are not tenants. I think you'll find what we found is that people who are tenants will want to come down and see people who are not also tenants, but just other humans. And yeah, that's I mean, what's so exciting about cities.
1: It, I mean, I think it really is exciting when you see some of the things that we saw in Penn um, some of the challenges we've seen in New York and London in, in this city as well, in Dublin. But it's, it's that idea of having a, a general reset Mm-hmm. where we we have an opportunity, particularly in Wilson Park and, and the portfolio that we have around the city, to do those things, almost turn buildings inside out at, at street mm. level. You know, that whole chemistry of what you get at a busy streetscape, um, some of it good, some of it hard to manage, but I think that human interaction is what we really need to get
2: back. The the, the cultural institutions in this city, um, we haven't spent a lot of time in them, mm. and I look forward to that. Is another very important thing. And I think New York has done an extraordinary job. Um, Brad, who you live near there, Lincoln Center has done exactly what you just said. It turned itself inside out. Mm. And it's remarkable. Um, These buildings were built in the 70s. They were built. Um, by displacing people without resources so that people with enormous resources could go in and listen to a four-hour opera, and they fell asleep in the first 15 (laughs) minutes. And essentially, that's what it was until about five years ago. And Diller Scafidio, for the most part, incredibly talented architects who probably learned all of their trade on the high line. They did the high line, right? They turned these buildings inside out when they reopened what's now called Geffen Hall, the Philharmonic. People can walk in to a beautiful public space that they cannot be asked to leave. And they can watch the simulcast on this giant screen of what's going on inside, which is going to cost a $200 ticket. And they can have what I think is a remarkable experience there and by, you know, coffee and wine and so on and so forth. And and that's a remarkable um, thing. It's harder to do with these older buildings, but the Met has done it with right now. Um, a, a sculptor has put all sorts of uh, crazy new artwork up on the facade and they're willing to tear their wall down um, without actually doing it. And I think those Cultural institutions here and and elsewhere have to continue to follow that model, um, because not everybody has the time or the resources, you know, uh, to go into these things. And, And we can't, you can't make a cultural institution as a developer, it, no, but it, I mean, it's I it's do... an enormous undertaking of which none of us have those yeah, experiences.
1: And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. I think there's a lot of bravery in New York because a lot of philanthropy happens. Um, the recent opening of the PAC in uh, downtown Manhattan beside uh, Freedom Tower is an example of that. I mean, we've tried to do it in Dublin, albeit it, it happened a bit early in the recovery of the pandemic. We we, we were looking at our buildings a bit like you described as a as a living canvas for the showcasing of basically free art and design. Um, we saw this opportunity, as you describe, I think, as it's almost democratization of art in 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 a public forum, and we. Initially started using hoardings in our buildings. Uh, we gave the hoardings over to up and coming artists who would produce a, a collage or just a piece of visual art and display that for six months or a year rather than just the obvious, you know, available to let uh, marketing um, bump that you'd see on hoardings and that evolved to a digital screen about 25 meters long seven meters high and we put that up around Wilton park right mm. and we got so much grief over yeah. that initially mm-hmm. um but we programmed it and over the course of maybe 18 months we've showcased over 100 artists seven and a half thousand hours of, of different forms of art and media um again it's been recognized more lately but we we found it difficult initially. Um, you know, we showed some vision, but we, we had a real battle on our hands to bring the city with us, to bring a lot of the community with us. Now, eventually it, it did find favour, but we're in a minority doing that. And I think we'd like to see more of that happen. We'd like to see more of that happen with... Our partners in in the cultural institutions in the city, but also with the city itself, like the city managers, the city authorities, where there's a certain, I don't know, conservatism or fear of failure. Um, and I think they're the initiatives that strike me about New York. And I think that thing about hard-nosed commercialism, and then when you go to New York and you see those stickers on the cars, you know, New York, Empire State. I think people are genuinely proud of, of where they come from. They're proud of New York. They, 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 they fight to see New York getting back on top. And that's, I think, something we're missing here in Dublin, that, that pride.
3: Well, one thing I, I just have to mention I, I really admired in the things you showed us is what you just said about your willingness to try something. Mm. I mean, it's evident. Also, I have heard in some things you've described is you're also not afraid to fail and keep trying, and and tweak, and try something different. And I think that's the only way you really can create change. Mm. I see it both in the art that you're making part of. Almost every project you showed me today, there's a major, and I don't mean this 1% for art, give back thing. It's a true belief in the value of art in, 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 in in a reaction to the human condition. And also, and this is one of the things that we're working really hard in New York to try to bring to life, is the creation of public green space. I can't I can't explain I And mean, we sit with many, many um, folks who we, we, we study workplace. And one of the things that's hard, and this is going to be one of the hard things also about people uh, making that choice to come back to the office from this maybe bucolic or some semblance of a green experience they're having back at their home is they, they desperately need connection to nature, natural things, green spaces, living things, places to contemplate, places to get a, a, a relief. And almost every project you showed us You pointed out the green piece before you showed us the beautiful facade. And and that's, I think that's what the real, I mean, most people, my my wife calls them civilians. She said, we're going to a party. Are they going to be architects? Will there be any civilians? (laughs) Most (laughs) civilians, non-architects, people that are not in the design trade, aren't really talking about the facade and the fenestration and the the brisole. They're looking like a human being. Like, do I like hanging out here? Mm. And do, do I feel good here? and i think the water the water the plants mm. the foliage that's remarkable and i think it will be acknowledged eventually new york did
2: an incredible job with i heart new york that mm. simple graphic it was an irish designer made there. yeah yeah, it made it. And we need to eye Shamrock. In <laughs> it, it, you know, the Shamrock's four <laughs> yeah. right? And and it really is. It goes back to brand and will and mm. purpose, and and money. You know, New York is built on individuals' wallets, right? You know, every one of those buildings has some boldface name, and they weren't given seventy million dollars or a hundred million dollars until they got their name on that building. And you don't see that really. You see in L.A., you in in America, of course, but you don't see that in Paris. You know, they the in France, they just built. Cultural institutions, because that's who they are. Um, the British, they build it on the lottery um, money. And Ireland, I heard, I read, you have ten billion dollars that's just hanging around from tax income, and you guys just need to spend some of that. Um, in a, in a you know, everybody needs to spend money on pipes and bridges and so on, and and that's. But you really need to throw it on some showy stuff that. Um, makes people and, and not ferris wheels um you know and yeah, that kind
1: I, and, of stuff and i think that that whole cultural deficit so to speak for for us was exposed during the the pandemic when you couldn't see anything other than vacant vacant buildings and streetscapes and that was what motivated us to bring living canvas about to you're right the greenery and the art that was always part of what we saw as being the establishment of a of a decent place that attracted human beings and you know w- We've listened to some of the, the leadership that New York has given. and I remember listening more lately to Mike Bloomberg talking about why and how he made Manhattan successful and what, it needs, what needs to happen again. And he said it was really simple. It was two things, make it safe and make it inviting. I mean, that covers a multitude of things, but I think there are two things that if we could take away from our trip to New York and meeting with you guys is, is, those, is those two points. But the inviting piece is what we're here to talk about today. And I think we've learned a lot about how to make places more inviting. And I think it is the human dimension. That we all agree on is the, the most yeah. powerful thing. And I
3: think what's interesting is what, what, and not, not that we would know what to do, but just our modest suggestion is just show people what's happening. Cause when, like I said, we got past a lot of doors today because we know you. And what we saw inside was, was spectacular in terms of the people teaming through and mm. connecting and, 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 and having exciting experience. I think it's really not so much
2: creating these moments, but maybe just uh, letting others see it. Um, there are only two things we think about. It's the past and the future. And if architects, builders, developers think about the present, we're dead, right? Because yeah. everything we're doing is affecting what's next to it, our heritage, the character of it, what worked, what didn't work, and so on. We, we mm-hmm. knock it down. Do we build it new? So on and so forth. You know, that's the past and and, and so on. And... We're trying to solve a problem in, you know, a building, what's the fastest you've ever built a building, you know, from start to finish is five years. So we're already in the future. And Brad, I'm going to say it because I learned it from him. Um, He's interesting because, you know, in New York, leases, you know, run 10 years or so on and so forth. And it's all about bringing people in. And he says to his clients, or you say it best, what do you well, say, I say to your We're clients? designing an office for a client and the lease is usually like 10 years and they're
3: trying to think about what kind of desks they want or how people are learning or what they do. I said, well, let me just bring one point of attention to you. The people who are going to occupy your office space towards the end of your lease, they're in high school right now and you haven't met them <laughs> because these leases are long. So you need to be That's thinking right, yeah. way out in the future when you design physical things because the use case is way out in front of you.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. I think today when we walked around One Wilton, you could see the variety of, of people that were using that space, different yeah. ways of using it. And the one thing I came, came away with was I, I'm much older than most <laughs> <Exactly>. of them, <laughs> but they seem to be having a good time. And, you know, with that, I'd like to thank Brad and, and, and Dan for their time today. It's been really interesting and we look forward to having further conversations. Thank you. Thank you, now.
0: Thank you guys for a fascinating discussion and thanks to our listeners for listening to the latest episode of iPut's Shaping Our City podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us for future episodes where we'll continue the conversation on topical issues affecting real estate, the built environment and the vitality of cities. Thank you.